Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. In a new move to stem youth use of nicotine vaping products, the United States Congress granted the U.S. Food and Drug Administration new powers to regulate synthetic nicotine as a tobacco product, thus enabling the regulator to close what many anti-vaping critics say is a massive loophole which has allowed many flavored vaping products to remain on the market. Joining us today to discuss the impact of this move is Amanda Wheeler, president of the American Vapor Manufacturers Association. Amanda, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brent. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's good to see you too. Now, we're going to be talking a bit more today about also China and flavor bans and the never-ending problems for vaping. But let's start first with the omnibus spending bill for fiscal 2022. That was just passed. What exactly did the Congress do? Right. So uh, last week in the federal omnibus bill to fund the government as well as provide funding to Ukraine for their conflict with Russia, um, Congress passed a spending bill uh, buried in a few thousand pages was uh, a regulation that uh, basically subjected synthetic nicotine products to all of the regulations that tobacco derived nicotine products are subject to in the Tobacco Control Act, including um, PMTA. It set um, various deadlines around when PMTAs have to be turned in, uh, the timeline uh, to market those products without FDA authorization, as well as some requirements about uh, FDA reporting items. So did they just change the wording around uh, or was it more extensive than that? Uh, well, it was a bit more extensive than that. Um, of course, the details weren't fleshed out beyond some basic timelines, but um, basically the long and short of it is, you know, when all of the manufacturers submitted their PMTAs on their tobacco-derived nicotine products uh, last year and FDA denied about 90% of those products, a large portion of the industry responded to that by using synthetic nicotine, uh, meaning nicotine not derived from the tobacco plant in their vaping products. And, um, you know, the Bloomberg funded groups, obviously some of the tobacco groups, um, they didn't like that businesses were still finding a way to do business despite having those FDA denials. And so there was a push in Congress to have synthetic also regulated by the FDA. Right, so let's take a quick look here at some of the language. Now, this this is from Azim Chaudhry's uh, newsletter that he just put out, I think, yesterday. Um, and this is the language inside the bill, quote, any product made or derived from tobacco or containing nicotine from any source that is intended for human consumption. So that's, that's pretty wide. Like, they really opened up the gates there. And then as Azim writes, he says, now that it is law, this provision closes the synthetic nicotine loophole and puts synthetic nicotine products under the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's regulatory authority. So my concern with this, and I know it's the same as others, is that, I mean, the FDA, see, I mean, they had a very specific purpose when the 2009 law was passed that gave them the ability to deem products that are not directly mentioned in the law to be tobacco products. Now, we've had issues with regard to the fact that, of course, you know, drip tips and, you know, other components that are clearly not made of tobacco have been deemed to be tobacco. But this, this last one just really kind of sticks in my craw. 
You know, it, it really does because, you know, vaping, I, I would say, I would strongly disagree that vaping is a tobacco uh, product. You know, when we were initially deemed as a tobacco product, uh, it's it's quite ridiculous. Um, potassium is not a banana product, right? Uh, just because we were using nicotine and vaping products, uh, there was no part of the tobacco plant in those products. So it was quite ridiculous. Uh, for the FDA to shove us into regulations meant for, you know, a 19th century agricultural product just because we contain one chemical compound uh, that was derived from tobacco. But especially now, you know, with the advent of synthetic nicotine, that's a complete break from the tobacco plant entirely. And so now to come back and subject um, synthetic nicotine products to these same requirements. It's a bit of a stretch. You know, we're getting quite far out from, from anything that could reasonably be considered a tobacco product. Now, just a year ago, synthetic nicotine really was being held out as a champion, the last stand for the, for the industry. Yeah, that's right. You know, I don't think um, it's it's interesting, um, you know, in that quote that you shared from Azim Chowdhury, he had the word loophole in quotes. And, you know, I really do take issue with the way that some of the um, Bloomberg groups and uh, some of the tobacco companies have presented synthetic nicotine as a, quote, loophole. Um, it, it wasn't a loophole. It was an area not addressed by the law. It, it was an area that was never contemplated by the law. And so I think, um, you know, to, to say that companies were trying to do something sinister and exploit some kind of loophole um, is a real, um, you know, judgment call there that, that attributes motives that I don't think exist. Um, I don't think anyone was looking for a way around the law. The, the, most of the businesses that were using synthetic nicotine are the businesses that tried to fully comply with PMTA requirements in 2020 and had their applications promptly tossed out like yesterday's garbage, you know, based on a made up pretext that FDA had never previously shared with any of those companies. And so we're not talking about law evading loophole seekers. We're talking about companies that went through years of effort and years of expense to comply with FDA regulations, you know, companies that had done so since 2016 with, um, you know, ingredients listings, manufacturer registration, all of the many requirements that we had to do for years leading up to the PMTA deadline. These aren't, these aren't, you know, illicit companies looking to skirt the law. These are the companies that, that have always been compliant and, and will continue to make an effort to be compliant with this new synthetic regulation, despite the degree to which they may disagree with it. Now, based on that, they've, they've ba basically said that there's now a new PMTA process, one that's just for synthetic nicotine? Well, you know, it's, it's not clear how FDA is going to handle this. They released an announcement uh, just a couple of hours ago um, stating that they plan to publish uh, something in the Federal Register uh, denoting that synthetic products are, are now subject to all uh, tobacco regulatory requirements and that they would be providing further details on implementation. And so a lot of this is an open question right now of what their process is going to be for these applications. Uh, that remains to be seen, but it sounds like FDA intends to release some of that information soon. Well, that's good news, at least that they're going to provide maybe a pathway, but it just seems to me that it's just probably ticking a box, I would bet, on the FDA. 
I think your read on that is correct, Brent. I think, um, you know, a proper FDA process around this would take years to develop. I think they are throwing together something quickly to comply with uh, the requirement Congress just passed. I don't expect them to do a much better job with that than they did with the first round of PMTAs that they had ample years to prepare for, but failed to do so. Well said. Well said, Amanda. Uh, and the key thing is, is that I don't think really FDA is driving the bus here and ever has been. It's the, you know, the public health groups and the media. Most importantly, I was just showing that New York Times story, and I think it's worth going back to it because this is so this is the I've not seen this much ink written uh, about vaping in a, quite a long time. And this New York Times piece was just uh, March 8th. So there was so much revving up. Uh, from Politico, The Times, all of the usual suspects. And then, so what drives me crazy about this is that, you know, you've got to get the young teen face in there, the face of, of nicotine addiction. And then, of course, way down, ugh, we're dusting off the old greatest hits of vaping misinformation here in this New York Times article. This is just an act of, of journalistic misconduct, I would say. True. True. Oh, God, it really drives me crazy. I wish that there was something better to read in the newspaper sometimes, but it's just so much of this stuff that we have to go through. Yeah, you know, that's really correct. You know, sometimes we see some decent and unbiased coverage from locally based publications, but in these national publications, um, you know, they take their uh, talking points straight from the Bloomberg press releases. And, you know, that as you well know, Brent, uh, that PR machine is a tough one to do battle with because it's so well funded and pervasive. Um, and reporters really should do a better job of, of fact checking some of these press releases they receive from organizations like Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids and others, because at this point they, they're just repeating, you know, ill-informed talking points. Yeah, in your, and I'm just looking through some of our other links here, in your mind, were they doing, you know, you know, celebratory, you know, jumps for joy uh, over this? Or, or they, they're not going to be happy until they grind the industry into the ground? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a machine and make no mistake about it. This is a machine that is is, a, you know, a big money endeavor. There are a lot of people in those organizations that are making insane amounts of money uh, to drive our products off the market, to shut our businesses down and close off our consumers access. And they're being paid handsomely to do so. So I, I don't expect anything will ever be enough for them. They will always find some new pretext. Um, to make their existence necessary. And that and that will be by continuing to try to drive our products off the market. If they receive um, flavor bans, they're gonna go for full vaping bans, right? If, if they receive these PMTA requirements from the federal level, they're going to do their best to enact them at every state level. It's, it's a self-perpetuating monster, they'll never stop. So how are uh, businesses in the US that were relying on synthetic nicotine how are they going to survive? What's the what can they do? Uh, well, so right now, um, there's a bit of a plan coming together over the last week. Um, you know, different attorneys, different uh, consultants that work with our industry have been digesting this in order to advise industry on next steps and interpret all of the ramifications of this for business owners. And I think in the last few days, I've, I personally, I've seen a lot of manufacturers uh, rally to this idea 
of, of submitting PMTAs by the 60-day deadline. And I cannot stress what a Herculean challenge that is. And, um, you know, the fact that we're being necessarily mandated to do the impossible. Um, I, you know, we've got some time constraints here on the show, so I don't want to get into all the reasons why it's impossible to give FDA the data required in a PMTA in a 60-day time frame, but I'll give you one brief example, Brent. Um, the reason why all of the tobacco-derived applications were denied last year was on this pretext of having a randomized controlled trial that compared the efficacy of flavored vaping to tobacco vaping while also weighing the risk to youth on flavored vaping versus tobacco flavored vaping. Um, and so uh, that data, that, that study requires six months of data collection just in the data collection period. Now, of course, you still have to design that study, come up with the protocol, present your study plan to FDA, then you have to recruit participants into your study, run six months of data collection, and then analyze and interpret those results and, and write them up for the FDA. And so that, at minimum, I think working quickly would take a year to do. And, you know, that's just one example. There are countless other parts of the PMTA that just as a very practical matter take longer than 60 days to conduct. And so it, it's quite outrageous that we are being mandated to do the impossible or lose our businesses. Yeah, that is definitely... The tragedy around this. And then we know that there's been no very, there's no track record of successful PMTAs already being granted to businesses of this type. Uh, no, Ren, that's right. The only PMTA that's been granted so far on a vapor product, as your audience is probably aware, is on uh, RJ Reynolds' View Solo product, which hasn't been meaningfully used by consumers in years. And even in that case, FDA did not approve the flavored varieties of that product. And so, um, you know, we haven't seen any evidence that in since September 2020, FDA has been able to have a functioning approval process. One approval or one authorization, I should say. One authorization has only come out in that entire time period. And yet now, according to this congressional law, FDA is somehow supposed to pull this off in 120 days. Um, it's impossible for businesses. It's impossible for FDA. There's no way FDA is prepared for it. It's doomed to failure. Let me ask you this. Uh, being in Canada, um, I don't even know if there's synthetic nicotine up here. Um, have you tried juice with synthetic nicotine and what's it like? Um, you know, I've, I've tried a lot of a lot of different juices and devices with synthetic nicotine um, over the last several months. And I would say um, I, I don't notice any difference. I, I think that little peppery aspect of tobacco derived nicotine uh, isn't there, but it's it's quite similar to me. I, I don't quite notice a difference. Well, it's very interesting. It just, you know, you read the argument that the antis make, and I mean, obviously we can understand it. They, they think that we're treacherous industry, you know, big tobacco people that are finding all these new ways to evade regulation and to hook more teens. But we're really just talking about adults, former smokers, who would like to continue along with the method that has kept them away from smoking cigarettes. Yeah, that's right, Brent. You know, these, these products aren't some big tobacco evil plot to hook a new generation on nicotine, as is often regurgitated by these folks. Um, these are products that were innovated by smokers for smokers 
to get them off of big tobacco cycle of disease and death. Now, to be fair, tobacco's come along and jumped on that train and come out with their own vaping products. You know, tobacco's first generation attempt at vaping products was quite unsuccessful. And that was the era when you really saw the rise of the vape shop because we were over here developing and innovating products rapidly that, that were very appealing to smokers. Um, but, you know, tobacco with their latest generations of vape products, they have stepped into this space. Um, but that's not what the space was built on. The space was built on smoking smokers helping other smokers get off of tobacco's products. And that's been completely twisted and perverted in the media and in these Bloomberg talking points into something it's not. Yeah, Bloomberg is everywhere. Uh, we, we can always come back to this topic with uh, the synthetic nicotine if you think that we've missed something. But at this point, let's take the Bloomberg thing because I'd like to jump to China and now, first of all, we've got kind of the issue that's going on with the COVID, potential COVID stuff that's happening there. It looks like Shenzhen is shutting down, locking down at least. Oh, like, I mean, I, I'm not expecting you to have an expert opinion on this, just as a vapor and so forth. What does it make you think when you see something like this? Right. Well, you know, it, it is concerning because so much of our supply chain, especially for hardware and devices, is entirely uh, tied up with China when it when it comes to the hardware that we need for our products. Um, and so it is it is worrisome when when you see all of these events happening in China that are going to radically uh, impact the supply chain. Yeah, and impacting the supply chain is exactly the issue. Now, um, we had Azim on the show uh, and his business partner um, in Shenzhen, um, or maybe Shanghai, uh, back at the end of January, early February, with regards to the regulations in China. Well, we know a lot more about that now, um, as it's been released today, that, they're, that indeed they are definitely banning flavors. And they are definitely banning open systems. Stuff we already knew, but I, you know, it's become more concrete now. And overall, it concerns me because the Chinese government has said in statements that I've read that this is all about trying to keep vapes out of the hands of kids. And that's the Bloomberg argument. And what kind of hope are we in here if the place that makes all the cigarettes buys into the Bloomberg talking points. Yeah, you know, there, there are quite a few problems with um, the, some of the dependence on, on Chinese manufacturing. I mean, there's a way in which China is very, very good uh, at their manufacturing processes. And I think we've gotten a lot of new product development and a lot of innovation that came out of, uh, you know, Chinese hardware suppliers over the years. But, you know, there, it, it is a huge problem for our industry that we do not have any sort of American base of manufacturing because when when events like this happen you know our industry is so heavily dependent on that supply chain through china that you know we really could potentially be quite crippled when these kinds of events are going down over in china yeah but is it even possible to have a domestic u.s industry when not no products could get a pmta 
Uh, correct. We're, we're caught in quite the bind, right? And, and so, you know, it, you know, it's been a long time since there's been any kind of significant amount of, of hardware made in the United States. And so this is a, a situation that over the years has just slowly and slowly migrated more and more to Shenzhen. And, you know, which I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with that when the supply chains are functioning properly and before all of this um, overbearing regulations coming down in China. But, you know, now it's it's going to be interesting to, to watch how it plays out and just exactly how large of an effect it has on the American market. And just to be very honest, I'm, I'm not quite sure on that. I do know that a lot of our members that we speak with that have relationships with China that rely on China for some of their manufacturing are quite concerned about it. Yeah. Well, I'm very concerned about it. And I do believe that we're witnessing an example of of another massive market buying in to the youth vaping epidemic narrative. And I think we're in big trouble. Yeah, you know, Brent, I don't know to what extent the Bloomberg machine has influence in China, but they're quite active globally. The United States is by no means their, their only target. Um, they have weighed laced Weighed, weighed, laid waste, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, in many countries around the world to harm reduction, um, infiltrated many governments, especially through their influence at the World Health Organization. And so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised that, that their efforts would also encompass China. Now, for the sake of, you know, talking about uh, nothing good, uh, what's the state of flavor bans in the U.S.? Now, there was some stuff going on in Colorado. Could you provide us an update on that? Yeah, absolutely. I just came back from Colorado yesterday. We have a flavor ban uh, that's been introduced at the state level. Um, this has a long history in Colorado. It's been done. It was attempted in 2020. Um, the pandemic closed down the state legislature, so ultimately that didn't go anywhere. Um, but over the course of the pandemic, you saw the campaign for tobacco-free kids uh, build up this 100-org coalition, and they went city to city all over the state um, lobbying flavor bans and attempting to pass those. Um, they were unsuccessful in most places where they attempted to do this. Um, Rocky Mountain Smoke Free Alliance put up a very strong municipal defense over the last several years in Colorado. Um, they were successful in a couple of places like Boulder and Glenwood Springs, which absolutely devastated the vape shops that were in those cities. Um, but, you know, just recently at the end of last year, they tried to do a flavor ban in the city of Denver, which is the largest city in Colorado. Um, they got it through, but then the mayor, um, out of a concern for minorities and small businesses, vetoed that flavor ban. And so Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids had it reintroduced at the state level. Uh, where there was some cocky assurance on the part of, of the flavor band sponsors that that was going to sail through no problem. And, um, you know, it took months for that bill to even be calendared for committee because there were so many problems and controversies associated with it. And uh, when it went through committee this week, it came out with several major amendments, including an amendment to allow age-restricted stores to continue to sell flavored vaping products. So that flavor ban is still on the move in Colorado. Age-restricted stores have been taken out of it. Um, Ultimately, we expect that entire flavor ban to lose and fail further along in the legislative process. So Colorado is an interesting space to watch, but it's certainly not the only space where, where these items are being pushed. Could you describe what it's like to be a part of that lobbying machine that is you know, around the flavor ban issue? 
Well, it's interesting. So it was widely reported in the Colorado media that um, this was one of the most heavily lobbied bills in state history. There were, I, I think, 220, 230 registered lobbyists on this bill. Um, and it's, um, it's insane. You know, it's such a big fight. You would almost think it was at the national level. There's so much money, so much time, so much effort put into it from both sides. Um, and, you know, it was it was very interesting to me that with 220 lobbyists um, on that project, um, uh, the vape shops, you know, us with the smallest lobbying force in the whole enterprise were able to secure that amendment in the first committee. I thought that was a pretty decent piece of work. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that we're content with that solution. I think we will continue to work to oppose that flavor ban because we strongly believe consumers everywhere deserve to access these products, not just the ones that happen to shop at our stores. So for our viewers to get a sense of like what might be working or how well that you're at least, you know, taking wax at these people. I mean, have you been able to really dig into like the CDC? This is uh, Jim McDonald from Vaping 360 just from a few days ago. Um, talking about how the CDC's report, you know, shows that the past 30-day middle and high school cigarette smoking has fallen to just 1.5%. That that smoking is down to 1.5%. So when you start looking at everything, you go, well, if smoking is falling, like, dramatically, you know, how can you say that there's a uh, vaping as a gateway to smoking? There should be an increase uh, of smokers, if that was the case, you, you know, you know how you say that, Brent. You lie through your teeth, which is precisely what they are doing. They are lying to their through their teeth. They are misleading lawmakers, and you know, in a lot of cases, they're getting away with it. And in Colorado, we put our foot down. Um, you know, we had um, like nearly a ten-hour showdown in committee the other night, and you saw world-renowned experts weigh in on that, like Abigail Friedman, David Sweener, Ethan Nadel. Charles Gardner. Um, we had a lot of our policy folks like Guy Bentley, Tim Andrews, Lindsey Stroud, who weighed in on that to correct some of the misinformation surrounding the CDC numbers. And I, I think that was very well communicated to committee members. Um, and I think, you know, the, those people that came and spoke to that topic did a very good job of presenting accurate information to lawmakers. Well, that's excellent news. Sorry, was that is that available online? Uh, yeah, there's an audio recording of the whole 10 hours of drama online. It was quite fun. After I did my testimony, the, the flavor band sponsor uh, tried to ask me a gotcha question about the FDA PMTA process. He's only familiar with me in the context of Colorado advocacy, so I don't think he quite knew who he was asking to uh, speak for openly for five minutes about the PMTA, but it was quite enjoyable. Well, that's excellent. So as we're wrapping up here, I'd like to make sure that we talk a little bit about what's next, what uh, the AVM's got going on, and how can you know people help? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the first things first, everyone is going to have to make their plans to submit their PMTAs uh, in this next 60-day period. Um, the first step on that is if your products have already been denied by the FDA and their tobacco-derived version, you will have to reformulate them uh, to create what, it, what would be considered a new product in order to reapply. So uh, whether that is slightly altering the flavor concentrations, relabeling, renaming the products, um, they do have to be different than products that might have been previously denied. So that's step one. Uh, step two, 
companies need to be going back to whatever sources they use to submit their PMTAs the first time, whether that's renewing those relationships with their PMTA consultants, whether that's using the, the crowdsource tools that we were providing in ABM, um, those PMTAs are, need to be um, worked on immediately. So, so please make your plan for how you're going to execute your PMTA and submit it and start working on it right away. Um, outside of outside of, of PMTA submissions, uh, ABM is undertaking a significant lobbying effort to secure enforcement discretion from FDA because there is no world in which FDA is going to approve those products in 120 days. And without some enforcement discretion, no one will be able to market those products on day 121. And day 121 is squarely what all of ABM's lobbying efforts are focused on at this point. Yeah, I guess that's a it's a good question for me to ask, and that would be is that what's the point <laughs> of going through uh, the process of getting those synthetic nicotine PMTAs out? But I guess one of them might be some some enforcement discretion that will keep them on the market if they have applied for that PMTA. Right, and and also if you don't have PMTAs in, and there is any kind of legal relief through the court system, um, it's not. I don't see a world where um, anybody that didn't apply would benefit from any of that legal relief that we may get. Um, I anticipate that you know if people have their tobacco derived uh, or their synthetic applications denied in the near future, there will be um, an increased rate of, of appeals filed in federal court seeking stays, uh, like what we saw last year with the 43 cases that were filed. Many of those did receive successful stays, and I think that will inspire more manufacturers to pursue stays in court this time. Right. So get a PMTA in, uh, and that at least gets you in the ball game a bit. Correct. Correct. It's a crazy world we live in, Amanda. Uh, but you're doing excellent work, and you know, on behalf of just a right I'm on the consumer side of it, thank you so much for being one of those people out there fighting so hard. Thank, thank you, Brent. I appreciate it.